Welcome. Woody, is that you? Wally, good to see you. Good to see you. Uh, we had a uh, special morning. It was uh, 11 years ago today that my wife, Sarah, I mean Christy, gave birth to our youngest. So. Ben. Uh, we're going to continue today in the, the, our Body and Life Integrity series, uh, in which we've been considering how we should and why we should become more effective and biblical as a church, as a representation of the union of Christ and his body, as well as a light to the world by integrating our body and our everyday lives more naturally. One of the fundamentals of God's design for family and church life is leadership. And there are at least three types of leaders which can be distinct or often overlap, uh, meaning a person could be just one or maybe all three of these at the same time. Now, with Independence Day coming up, which Mike alluded to last week, it would certainly be appropriate to mention the great patriots and founders of our nation and pray for our present leaders, Lord knows they need it, and many of the lesser servants who serve in positions that I will call positional leaders. Uh, these are folks who are elected, uh, appointed, nominated and recognized, or otherwise placed in leadership positions. Uh, these include bosses and managers and church leaders. Uh, this being an election year, uh, there will most likely be a lot of discussion about positional leaders in the near future. There are also natural leaders. Uh, these are people who just have the character the presence, the right stuff. And uh, like any character played by John Wayne in the old movies, uh, within God's household, however, leadership starts at the top with God the Heavenly Father, who in turn instituted the family head designed to be fulfilled by the husband uh, and father. And a vision of getting us closer to a biblically functioning church must cultivate fathers as servant leaders in both the family and the church as much as possible. And leadership at its base involves not just ultimate legal authority, but also responsibility and accountability. And it's passed down through structures of authority. Church elders and deacons and household heads are not the only leaders here today. The third type, relational leaders, include just about everybody here except the very youngest. Older, younger, men and women, Married, single, even older siblings are de facto or, in fact, relational leaders. 
all of us, including peers, lead by example. Whether we choose to or not, whether for good or not so much. If there's anybody younger around, either in age or spiritual maturity, reality is that you are being watched. This is true not only in the home, but it includes how we respond in crises, in parenting, on the job, when we worship, and when we serve or fail to serve. Basic training in leadership starts in the home. God the Father leads husbands, who in turn lead wives, who in turn complement the Father to lead children. Older children are relational leaders to younger children. Grandparents hopefully participate by their example. Building healthy leadership within the home not only helps the home, but the church as well. Before one can become a positional leader in the church, one must be a proven leader in the home, according to 1 Timothy 3. This forms what I've called a multi-generational leadership change. This is best explained in Titus 2, if you'll turn there, starting at verse 1, which explains the concept very, very well. As for you, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. Older men are to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith, in love, in perseverance. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, so that the word of God will not be dishonored. Likewise, urge the young men to be sensible, In all things, show yourself to be an example of good deeds with purity in doctrine, dignified, sound in speech, which is beyond reproach, so that the opponent will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. Now, as we talk about this topic, do not just passively listen and file it away in a cubbyhole. Again, think like a girl. Connect everything. Insert yourselves into the context about which we're speaking. For example, if I mention leadership of a father, if you're a single mom or you're alone unmarried, consider how this might apply to you now and in the future. Beyond that teaching, please, please learn from the examples around you of others who are positional, natural, and relational leaders. And when we speak of the family, for instance, spending time together, consider also what it takes to develop relationships within the church. Okay, why should I or you desire to be a leader? Leadership is sometimes described as a lonely burden because it involves the responsibility for making decisions for others, and sometimes those decisions are, shall we say, not appreciated. Yet, God's Word characterizes leadership as a privilege. 1 Timothy 3 says, It is a trustworthy saying, if any man desires to the office of an elder, a leader, 
It is a fine work that he seeks after. Men, younger and older, even if you are never recognized as a positional leader, as an elder or deacon in the church, the qualities relating to those positions are worthy to pursue all of your life. Those qualities provide a blueprint for how to be a leader that others will respect and desire to follow. One of the reasons for this perspective in a world that avoids responsibility is that leaders play an active and vital role in shaping and building the lives of future generations. Perhaps someone has told you, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. They're encouraging you to to make something of yourself, and not bad advice. I've probably given that to my kids a number of times. But actually, the biblical view is that none of us is a self-made man or self-made woman. Rather, each of us is a unique, original creation or masterpiece of an artist who we call God. Relational leaders, including parents, brothers and sisters in Christ, are called to apprentice under the chief artist to mold and shape the life of another of his masterpieces. It's a high calling of leaders to implant a vision of God's calling on future leaders, those who will be tomorrow's employers, managers, mayors, and most importantly, leaders in the family and the church. Just like rearing children of our households by nurturing spiritual children in the household of God, leaders impact the course of personal, family, national, and even worldwide history. Spiritual offspring have the potential to affect generations for Christ. One of the greatest joys the Apostle John experienced was to hear that his spiritual children were walking in truth. Now, just how are leaders made? What's the training course? The relationship between a mature believer and another who is aspiring to leadership is called discipleship. This process involves counsel. An example doesn't happen overnight. It develops through experiences of applying biblical principles to respond with the mind of Christ. In short, in order for future leaders to be molded into mature leaders, they must spend time with other mature leaders. When we apply God's Word to reveal life issues in a fallen world, we deepen our relationship with Him as we seek His answers. Uh, When these leaders in training see how mature leaders deal with their own problems with anger and pride and lust, in the light of God's eternal truths, they grow in their faith and their own maturity. In short, developing maturity requires being connected through relationships which dig deep into the real issues of life. There are three phases to the learning or the discipleship process. First, instruction or the teaching of doctrine. Second, demonstration or leadership by example. And finally, 
application, actually doing it yourself. The problem is that the approach that we take in the modern church focuses primarily on the first phase. Sure, we need solid doctrine on a level that's effective for the student or the disciplee. But when we stay in the classroom and we fail to mix with real-life examples and then apply what we learn, we end up with impotent or incompetent leaders on all levels. It's a little like thinking a medical student is ready for brain surgery, a lawyer is ready for the courtroom, a soldier is ready to fight, or a seminary student is ready to pastor a church when the classroom work is finished. Now, I have a hard saying. Please hear me out. How are future leaders trained in the contemporary church? If we spend substantially all of our time, other than worship and teaching, in segregated groups, where is the connection, the opportunity to rub shoulders with godly examples in real-life situations? The doctrine we receive during the week is vitally important, but it is not the whole picture of the Christian life. Real-life application is that teaching is required to complete the learning or maturing process. That simply requires time together in that leadership training. Another problem is that the classroom is for the purpose of the student taking in wisdom and knowledge. It does not give out. It's a little like the Dead Sea, into which the Jordan River flows, but because it's the lowest land elevation on earth, the water has nowhere to go. It stays there, and the salt and the other chemicals collect, and fish can't swim, plants can't breathe. It is essentially, therefore, dead. If all the church does is teach and talk about ministry, but it never gets around to the doing, it is truly too heavenly-minded to be any earthly good. Now, we've tried a number of ways at Lion Lamb to avoid this problem. We send kids to places like Camp Barnabas, where they're there not to have a good time, although they do, they're there to serve. We send kids to the group home to serve. We send mixed teams to the orphanage in Haiti, which has blessed everybody profoundly. Some of the best times that I've had personally here at Lion Lamb are when we get a group, a mixed group of people together uh, to go work on somebody's house or do menial tasks down at the rescue mission. Now, ideally, the more we will move toward more and more ministry that takes place house to house in real lives. This is the stuff that makes discipleship effective. Why? Because ministry that takes place in familiar settings, where we are, where people are comfortable, is more personal, and there is a greater possibility 
of meaningful heart-level connection. We need a mindset or an orientation of long-term growth which produces stronger relationships between ourselves as well as those to whom we're ministering. This will better develop spiritual maturity and a willingness to accept leadership of those God places over us. Now, to the chagrin of young teens throughout modern history, and certainly 60s radicals and radicals of today, the Bible teaches authority as a core concept. The Pharisees would usually challenge Jesus based upon what authority do you teach? More directly, God has given us an order of authority with accountability within families. So we see in 1 Corinthians 11, but I want you to understand that Christ is the head of the man, and the man is the head of the woman, and God is the head of Christ. And in Ephesians 5 and 6, we see, Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is also the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. Now, this is balanced with, verse 25, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And then we see in chapter 6, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and the mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. Which is balanced with fathers. Do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up instead in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. An example of the authority balanced with accountability would be parent finds a child's undergarment adrift in the house. Okay? Parent calls the child to remediate the problem. Later, parent finds said article unmoved. Having taught first-time obedience, parent becomes upset and and reproves the child in a spirit of anger. Other parent lovingly convinces first parent in private that there may be a better way to resolve this problem. The names here have not been disclosed to protect the guilty. Because this authority went over the top while preparing this message. I think we can all agree that this concept of authority and accountability is vital. Without it, our culture would collapse. Does it make sense that we should be training fathers, equipping them to be mature spiritual leaders in their households, and parents to train up willing and obedient children to become future godly parents and leaders? Now, you've heard about some changes. For our church body, the leaders of Lion and Lamb are not wishing, nor do we think it wise, to go from one extreme, complete segregation, 
to another complete integration all the time. We're simply trying to move back to the middle, to a more balanced approach than contemporary church culture offers. But we feel we do need to create more opportunities to connect and provide that real-life training by example while retaining the advantages of specialized classroom instruction for specific and limited purposes and groups. The church I grew up with was divided by Sunday school classes, usually determined by age and situation in life, identified by certain names, and those names went on for decades. That kind of division is neither healthy nor effective to build interdependent bodies and future leaders. As we've announced, uh, we've come up with a plan for the 9.30 hour to start in the fall, and we hope to get closer to that goal. This is just a small piece to a much bigger puzzle. It may not be perfect, so please be patient. And if you have suggestions, please help us feel our way through this largely unexplored territory. But frankly, a once-a-week Sunday school alone no matter what form it takes, is wholly inadequate to prepare one for spiritual maturity. That requires discipleship of a much more natural kind from mature believers. This needs to occur both between older and younger believers and certainly within each household. We've got to go beyond instruction to demonstration by real-life situations And finally, application, doing it. Parents and fathers in particular need to be discipled to meet the needs of the members of their own household. This, in turn, provides the reciprocal accountability for fathers and other household members. I want to suggest to you that this is not accomplished by dividing families up. Rather, this is accomplished first when wives and children see the man of the house becoming a leader. Another important part of the maturity process and effective leadership is utilizing spiritual gifts, as outlined in 1 Corinthians 12. The gifts are often discovered through their use, in everyday life. And we're not really functioning effectively as believers if we're not using or if we're unaware of our individual gifts. Within the households, if fathers are really in tune with their responsibilities, over time they can discern and develop the gifts of each household member. And frankly, the development of spiritual gifts is not something that happens much in the modern church building. Sure, the gifts of teaching and administration are needed and used, but other gifts, not so much. For a healthy body, all the gifts of future leaders must be developed and used. This is an area we should study more, and more importantly, apply more consistently. Our ministry will be much more 
effective over generations when the more mature within the church and household leaders do more to discern, develop, and then channel the gifts toward a lifelong calling. Now, if we did this stuff, what would be the results? I believe only this. Fathers would come closer to fulfilling their leadership role within the household. Day by day, children would be exposed to and have modeled before them the proper aspects of leadership and submission. Boys would grow up learning to be servant leaders, and young girls would learn to lovingly submit and complement their life partners. In short, they would prepare for strong and fruitful marriages. Within the church, the recognition of leaders, deacons and elders, would become a natural and easy process because the leaders would become known through their households as a result of the interconnection of the body. Crises, they happen, but they would be diminished because household leaders would be effectively discipling their wives and children. Finally, the church would function more like a body as singles, young couples, single-parent households are adopted by older, more mature households to form a more independent body of integrity. Now, in upcoming teachings, Lord willing, we will consider the household discipleship process needed to develop leadership. Miscellaneously here, I want to ask each of you to try to remember four words as we go forward. Generations, relationships, Hearts and routine, or everyday life. Try to keep those in mind. And when we talk about parents, how parents can train their children to be examples in future leaders, I urge you singles and, on the other end, you empty nesters to consider how these principles apply to you as well as the rest of us. Now, speaking of leadership, discipleship, parents and children, we now want to turn our attention to a couple of things that we are commanded to do as a church, yet the leaders believe that we have not emphasized these enough. These are things for which parents have distinct responsibilities and must make important decisions. The first of those is baptism. Let's start with the basic command by Jesus in uh, Matthew 28. He says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And as we have discussed, the discipleship process starts with salvation and continues until death. God is not finished with any of us yet. But to make a disciple means to first bring that person to Christ through saving faith. The very next step is baptism, the first act of obedience after the experience of rebirth in Christ. 
The consistent examples from Scripture of the early church is for baptism to immediately follow conversion. So in Acts 2, it says, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. In uh, Acts 8, When they believed Philip preaching the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were being baptized, men and women alike. And later in in chapter 8 of Acts we see uh, Philip meeting up with the Ethiopian eunuch who's studying Isaiah's uh, works. And the eunuch, after, after uh, uh, Philip explains the good news of the gospel to the eunuch, he says, look, water, what prevents me from being baptized? Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he ordered the chariot to stop and they both went down into the water, Philip as well as the eunuch, and he baptized him. The early Christians believed and were then immediately baptized, giving testimony through their obedience of this initial step to their inclusion in the body of Christ. Now, within some church traditions, converts are sprinkled with water on the head. The reason that we at Lion Lamb practice immersion, the new believer going completely under the water, and then rising out of the water, is because it's a beautiful picture of the death, burial, and resurrection and return of Christ. There's a pejorative, a word that's thrown around about easy evangelicalism. Uh, This term derives from the appearance that what the church today is really saying is, hey, just believe, be saved, and be cool. There's really no reason to change anything else in your life. Now, to the extent that that label is true, this lack of commitment to obedience and transformed lives uh, living in our churches today often starts with the infancy of belief when those who are newly saved are not baptized soon thereafter. The, this fault or state of affairs, uh, the fault for this state of affairs lies both with the new believer who continues to cling to the culture of the age and choosing to follow Christ's commands at their own convenience and church leadership when we fail to make more clear this command. The church, church should teach and new Christians should submit to baptism as the normal first step of obeying all of Christ's commands. Now, please note, baptism follows salvation. This sequence has significance. Some church teachings are inconsistent with this uh, biblical teaching, I grew up in a mainline denomination uh, that baptized infants, and I assume I was sprinkled, and some of you may have been as well. After uh, we got married, we eventually started to attend Bible-believing churches. However, to my shame, it took the salvation experience of our oldest for me to understand the significance of all this, because once he accepted Christ as his Savior, I, I say, I want to baptize you. And so I went to the church elders and I explained my desire to see if that was okay. 
But I had to say to them, you know, I'm convicted that before I baptize my son, I need to be baptized. So I went into the lake and was baptized, and immediately Matt came in and I baptized him. Better late than never. Um, I encourage you, if you were baptized as an infant and not since, to go ahead and make a profession of obedience and identification with Christ as a cognizant person. And while it doesn't have to be this way, I encourage believing fathers to baptize their own children. It is a high and holy privilege of being the head of the household. The doctrinal point here is that baptism follows conversion. Therefore, it cannot be a prerequisite to salvation. I'm reminded of the scene from the neoclassic, at least in this church, of the movie Nacho Libre where the main character is concerned for the salvation of his sidekick. The sidekick openly rejects God when he says, I believe in science. Nacho, not to be deterred, sneaks up on the young man with a bowl of water and baptizes him. Well, you've got to wonder what those sitting in the audience, who believe that baptism saves you, think about this sarcastic statement by the movie makers who are asking the question of how does dousing one with water earn them a ticket to heaven? To be clear here, baptism is not required to be saved. So we believe that an earnest and understanding deathbed conversion of a person is effective even without baptism. On the other hand, the public act of baptism is an act of obedience of the saved, which ideally will be done as soon as possible after a conscious decision for Christ. Now, that brings us to a related point as to when a child, when a child should be baptized, which requires a prior sticky question of when a child is actually saved, or more accurately, when should a parent feel relatively assured of that salvation? First, you know, we got to remember, we can't objectively make that determination for someone else. Only God knows one's heart. When we say with confidence, so-and-so is a Christian, he's a brother or sister in Christ, what we're really saying is, as far as I can tell, there is always some subjectivism involved in that evaluation of others. I can know for myself, but not someone else. Secondly, the question of salvation of a young child is an emotionally charged question. The most important goal for any serious Christian parent is not good looks, academic or athletic success, but having their child make a decision to save them for eternity as early as possible in life. But when a little child says, I want Jesus to come into my heart, it's not a question of sincerity, 
What parent is not going to run with that to the bank with rejoicing? But there is a question of whether the child truly understands what he or she is doing. Again, only God knows for sure, but remember, if adults can make false professions of faith in order to get married to somebody or just to be socially accepted by some friendly people, uh, we've got to think that an anxious parent can unintentionally coach a child to say the magic words without a true heart conversion. We look for a changed life in any convert, which is difficult sometimes with children. Sometimes this is just a difficult call to make, but it is a call that we as parents may have to make. So the exhortation here is just be as sure as you can before concluding that a child has made a knowing decision for Christ. Following salvation, baptism is meant to be an intelligent act of faith and obedience. Therefore, children should be old enough to understand what they're doing and why. When a child understands what's involved and can intelligently obey, they should. Okay, uh, Aaron mentioned that we have a form. Not that this is the answer, but... We ask that everybody who would be baptized fill out the form. And it asks that you first read some biblical passages about salvation and baptism and then write out your own conversion experience and then indicate how you would explain to someone else how to be saved. So parents, as a practical guide, let's say one of your small children says, I want Jesus in my heart, and they can't write. If you find yourself... Filling out the form for this child with little or no input from the proposed baptizee, maybe you need to wait for a little clearer understanding. Just be sure to follow up, and when the child is old enough to understand and desires, by all means, encourage them to do so. Now, we'll hold a baptism in just a couple of weeks at Lake Shawnee Swimming Beach. And it's always been a great time of praise for the baptisms, good fellowship, and fun. However, the leaders of Lion and Lamb have recently been convicted that we need to give baptism more emphasis and find a way to make this more than just a summer at the lake event in order to respond more readily when someone feels called to obey in this way. Pray for us. Okay. Next we want to talk about the Lord's Supper, communion, the Lord's table, publicly sharing the bread and wine, we use grape juice, in remembering Jesus in his death, burial, resurrection, and future return. At Lion and Lamb, we generally take the Lord's table on the first Sunday of the month, as we will today. Some church bodies do it every single week. Others, only on special occasions. Now, while the Bible suggests that this should be a regular practice, the problem with regularity is that it can become a routine with little meaning. So we have different men come up and lead this celebration each month to try to keep it fresh, but even that variety will not always 
stir hearts. Taking communion, frankly, is a, not only a duty, but a great privilege of those in God's household. Ideally, those who participate in the Lord's Supper have previously demonstrated their obedience and identification with Christ through baptism. The importance of this practice is highlighted by Paul in 1 Corinthians 11, if you can turn there, when he reproved the Corinthian church for the unworthy manner in which they were taking the Lord's Supper. And in that group, there were divisions, unresolved conflicts, rivalries, selfishness, and even drunkenness. And starting there at verse 22, Paul says, What? Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? In this I praise you not. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must first examine himself, and in so doing, he is to eat and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself, if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and a number sleep, and most believe that means die. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the word. And when we take the elements that Jesus left us, he wants us to remember him in a certain way, giving his body and his blood, his life for you and me. It's a little like looking at a picture of a loved one who's been gone for a long time. Taking the Lord's Supper should draw our hearts to a renewed appreciation for Christ's sacrificial love for us and ours for him. Now, if you read this, it is clearly intended as a special act of worship something the Lord takes very seriously. No other element in the New Testament worship provides for the consequences of taking the Lord's table unworthily as it does in 1 Corinthians 11. Again, with children, there is a temptation for the children to take the Lord's Supper because it is expected of them or because the other children are or because it represents something different than listening to or just hearing the old guy talk for 45 minutes. All these types of motivations are inadequate for participation in this act of worship. In order to participate, children should be mature enough to examine and judge rightly 
their own spiritual condition and whether they have a dispute with anyone else in the body. Keep in mind that some adults are not spiritually mature enough to do this. In fact, if you're not sure that you're a believer, if you don't know that you're saved, we strongly discourage you from participating in the Lord's Supper. Uh, You will not be judged by anyone. If children are not mature enough or have simply not been actively participating in the worship through the the songs and the prayer prior to, they probably should not participate in the Lord's table uh, when it comes up because it itself is an act of worship. And if you have young children participating in the Lord's table, young children, you should probably be accompanying them. Participation in the Lord's Supper requires thoughtful consideration from every participant. Jesus said those who want to worship him by bringing offerings to the temple should do so only after they've restored any broken relationships that they could restore. If anyone, child or adult, has unconfessed or unresolved problems with others when the body is taking communion, it's just better to abstain. I know of godly elders within the church who on a particular Sunday would not take communion simply because of some unresolved problem in their hearts. Uh, I personally have had to deal with a problem between my wife or with my children sitting here on Sunday morning before I could take the bread and the cup. Both thoughtful circumspection and joyful thankfulness are part of the participation of the Lord's table. Lion and Lamb welcomes brothers and sisters in Christ at the Lord's Supper who are themselves free before the Lord to partake in this remembrance and celebration. It's our job as parents to make sure that participating children are doing so with appropriate reflection and spiritual intelligence. Our goal at Lion and Lamb for the Lord's Table is to celebrate that feast, not with the old leaven, nor with leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Now, wrapping up, speaking of both practices within the Christian life, one might ask, what if I got it all mixed up? What if I did it backwards? I mean, as a little child, when they passed the bread and the cup in the pew, I just took it. And then years later, uh, I, I agreed to be baptized because I was told if I didn't, I'd go to hell. And then years after that, I met Christ as my Savior. What do I do? Well, I would suspect that that happens quite a bit, one way or another. But thankfully, God loves a humble and a contrite heart. As an act of obedience, I encourage you to go ahead and be baptized now, even if you were saved years ago, or you were previously baptized as an infant, or before you really trusted Christ as your Savior. Back to fathers as leaders, I encourage you to know the state of your flock. 
If you know your child is saved and understands, then encourage that one to be baptized. On the other hand, don't force a child to do something just as a show because everybody else is, including the Lord's table. Remember, here in this body, we are seeking authentic relationships, not just between ourselves, but with God, our Heavenly Father. Finally, if you are one who has not started down the path of faith in Christ, if you've never before understood your need for a Savior as a sinner like the rest of us, please come and talk to one of the leaders or someone you consider and know to be a committed believer. God welcomes and receives in his arms anyone who humbly recognizes their absolute need for him. My last bit of advice is simply follow good leaders and become one. Lord God, we give praise to you, and we thank you that you have put us into relationships that are meaningful. And within those relationships, each of us is a leader to someone else. Help us, Lord, to figure out how we, as individual examples, as under-artists, are being used by you to shape the lives and the futures of children and, in fact, generations to come. Lord God, we give you all the praise and pray that you would continually use each and every one of us as we work through our own lives and as we integrate our church and our families to your glory. We ask all these things in the precious and holy name of Jesus. Amen.